We're going to read Revelation 1 through verse 1 through verse 8. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the, on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him, and even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Good to see you today. I'm excited about what we are embarking on this morning to begin to look at eventually the seven churches in Revelation. Um, You can't fully understand them unless you understand chapter 1. For there are images that we will see in chapter 1 that will be connected to all seven of the churches. And so it's important for us to kind of get the backdrop and to to see these things that are said about Christ in chapter 1 before we get to the specifics of the seven churches. So to understand the seven churches, there are three ideas. Why were these, why was this message sent originally to seven places? One, um, we need to understand that they were written to actual seven churches. These were Real churches that existed, um, had people in them, had elders in them. They were there at the end of the first century in what what is modern-day Turkey, and back then would have been called Asia Minor. Another perspective of the seven churches are that each of them are representative of the condition of the church throughout history. And basically that idea is simply this, is that in the beginning... Uh, The church early on was like Ephesus. That's the first one. And throughout the ages, this is kind of a progressive aspect of things. And so so some believe that that the representative of throughout throughout the future from the first century moving forward representative of that. And then some of them, some people just say, well, they are representative of every kind of church that is around. And and I guess we could say, in a sense, that probably all three of those are probably um, true. I know for sure they were written to seven specific churches, and I know that they are representative pictures of some of the things that the churches have wrestled with. Um, In actuality, when we began to read this and we began to study this, this is a first century message to first century churches that has application to the 21st century church. So this is not something that was just for them, but this was going to continue to be 
the picture of this. One of the unique things about this conversation that believers can have about the church when we read the scripture, a lot of time we talk about our perspective of the church of, of, from the, this standpoint, how do we need to see the church? How do we need to see um, the church as it is defined? Um, what is our role in regard to that? What's unique about Revelation and Jesus' dealing with these seven churches is that we're going to see the church from his perspective. What does he think about the church? What is his concern about the church? What is his affirmation about the church? And so the coming weeks, and especially today, will find us magnifying and exalting Jesus as the Lord of the church. All of the New Testament books, I think you would agree with me, exalt Jesus. But none of them exalt Jesus in the scope in which the book of Revelation exalts him. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. We will see in this book some of the most appealing and engaging looks and perspectives of who Jesus is as we look at the fullness of his glory as it is written here in the text. And what we're about to embark on is why this morning I want to begin to say this. This is why I have the utmost confidence today as I stand before you to not be fearful of today or tomorrow of anything in the future. Our God is the only one who knows the future and is in control of things. So therefore, as we begin to read this, it's a picture of past aspects of things, present aspects of things, and then future aspects, and we can have confidence as we begin to read this, that you and I have nothing to fear. Is craziness going to come? And some of you are like, hasn't it already come? Well, yes. It's going to get crazier and more chaotic. And as it does, I remind us, we are in God's hand. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. We will see that we can have great confidence because of that Reality. So, Revelation, this book, is the culmination of all the books of the Bible. It is highly climactic of God's plan for the ending of the world and the finishing touches of the unveiling of this beauty of Jesus. Where you find prophecy in another book of the Bible, it will find its climax and fulfillment in the pages of the book of Revelation. So not only is it the culmination of all the books of the Bible, it is also the conclusion of many of the prophecies of the Bible. In places like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Isaiah and even in Matthew, there are things that have not yet to come and they find their fulfillment being told in greater detail in the book of Revelation. And so it contains as well the last message of Jesus to humanity, so that we would know more about him and his heart. So Revelation, I believe, is the most modern book that is ever written, for it contains things that have yet to happen. So we can read a lot in the Bible, and there are things that have happened, but with much of the book of Revelation, these are things that have not yet happened, and so therefore it is incredibly relevant to us and helpful to us to understand what is contained in the pages. 
So its relevance shows us that the entirety of faith's history, present time of faith, as well as the future. Go to verse 19 for a second. This is how the book is to be seen as we walk through it and understood. John is told here by Jesus um, what he is to write, the sequence of what he is to write. And so in verse 19, Jesus tells him, and we'll, again, we'll get back into this a couple weeks from now. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Let's read it one more time. So John's told, John, write therefore the things that you have seen already, things that are present, and things that are to take place after this. So John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there. He's, he's there because of persecution. This was a prison colony, and he's there. And this revelation comes to him. By the way, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna heal the church of one of its false things about this. I don't want to hear a single person moving forward say this. This is not revelations. This is the revelation, singular. This is an unveiling, one revelation of the glory of who Jesus is. So when John is told to write about the things that he's seen, I believe that's talking about Revelation chapter 1. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's going to see this glory of Jesus. And he's going to write the things that he had seen while he is there. We know that John has already written the things about that he's already seen. We have the Gospel of John and we have three other letters that have come to us that John has written about things. Then he's told you're to write about the things that are. And I believe that's writing about Revelation 2 and 3 in regard to the seven churches. And then he's told, then I want you to write about the things that are to come. And I believe that's when we get to chapter 4 all the way to end of chapter 22 as he begins to write about the revelation of these things that are going to come. But that is the, that's what John was told, how he was to write this. And again, I believe that Revelation 1 are the things that he had seen on, Revela- on, on the Isle of Patmos. And so he gets this. And so let's talk now about, um, let's walk through this. I don't know how many points we have today. Um, this is a lot of book. Let's see, let me see how many we got. Are y'all ready? We just have seven points today. A couple of them will be pretty quick. Let's look at the first one. Let's look at the person of Revelation. So it's there in verse 1. Look with me again. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So hear this. The ultimate aim and the ultimate purpose of the book of Revelation is to unveil the glory of Jesus. That's the purpose. John writes there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the purpose isn't to reveal the end times, though much of the book is connected to that. The ultimate greater purpose is that this book is about unveiling the glory of who Jesus is. So that's how we need to see it. This is given to us to understand more of the glory of Jesus. He is to be at the center of our understanding of every aspect of this as we study it. This word revelation comes from two Greek words. 
But it just basically means this. It means unveiling. It means something that's been covered, and now you lift the cover off, and you can see what's underneath that. So there are aspects in the book of Revelation that the Gospels and the Epistles did not give us about Jesus. We will see fresh things and unique things that had not been revealed before. And so revelation of Jesus Christ, this uncovering of more of who he is, we will begin to see in the days ahead. And this unveiling causes us to look forward um, in anticipation to more of who he is and also what he is going to do in the days ahead. And so because he is the person, the point of revelation... Therefore, we need to just know this. He is the center of this book. That's how we must see that. He is the center of this. It is a Christ-centered revelation, and he is the purpose of it. So this book also, I believe, contains one of the most worshipful looks about him all the way from chapter 1 all the way. I'm going to get excited in a little bit. I'm just telling you um, right now. John gets excited. Just notice a while ago, he had two amens there. He's like, amen, amen. This is who Jesus is. And we're going to look at some of those things in just a moment. So he is the person of Revelation. So secondly, this morning, what's the purpose of Revelation? Well, the purpose of Revelation, since Jesus is the center of it, is to know Jesus more. That's the purpose. So look at the second part of verse 1. So, John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take, take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now I want you to go all the way back to chapter 19 of Revelation. So we learn early on in verse 1 there. That it's the revelation of Jesus. He's the person of revelation. He's the center of it. He's the aim of it. Secondly, the purpose of it is that we would know Jesus more. So Revelation 1.1 tells us that. It's the revelation of Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants these things. Revelation 19, verse 10. This is toward the end. Then I fell down, John writes, at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the angel says, worship God. Now note this, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the purpose of this book is that by the end in studying it, we would know more about who Jesus is. He's the purpose of the book. So therefore... um, We must aim at making sure that we see the book and reading it in light of who he is. So every piece of it sets the stage for you and I to know him more and more. He's the person of Revelation. Secondly, the purpose of Revelation in 1.1 and in 1910 is that we would know Jesus more. So what's the process? How did this happen? How did we come to get this information? Look in the... Verse 1, kind of the third part of verse 1 there, it says, which he gave him, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even 
to all that he saw. So note this twofold aspect and then a fourfold aspect. The twofold aspects of this is the Father gave this revelation to Jesus. Jesus then makes it known to his servants. John gets this and the seven churches. By the way, we should be very grateful to these seven churches who received this initially. They all would have gotten this initially from John somehow. And it was preserved and kept and people read it. And we have this great piece of information to see the glory of Jesus um, that is here. So the Father gives the revelation to Jesus. Jesus shows it to his servants. And then the process has a fourfold aspect. So again, the Father gave the revelation to the Son. The Son, we will read, we will read, gives it to an angel. The angel comes and gives it to John, though there's also aspects of Jesus giving this to John as well. And then John wrote it down, and then John gave it to the seven original churches that this was written to. So again, watch this. Father gives a revelation to the Son. The Son gives the revelation to an angel. The angel comes and gives the revelation to John. John writes it down and gives it to God's servants, the churches, who now have that. And so we will see um, in some aspects of this, but by the way, the, the word angel is found 70 times throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation. And so when you talk about the end times and the unveiling of the glory of Jesus, God is going to greatly use angels in the process. If you didn't notice there at the very end of verse 1, he says, to show his servants the things which must soon, I want to focus on that word soon, take place. Now this word soon is where we get our English word tachometer. What's a tachometer do? It measures what? Speed, right? RPMs and power and things with that. So the idea of this word here when it says soon doesn't mean tomorrow or this afternoon. It simply means this, that when these things happen, they are going to happen with speed. It will quickly happen when things come to the very end, when, things, when Christ gets ready to return. So when the events of Revelation begin to happen, they are things that soon, quickly, they will unfold. This word, this word soon means swiftness, speed, fleetness, haste, something that will be quickly. So he is the person of Revelation. The purpose of the book is to know Jesus more. Thirdly, the process of Revelation was Father gives to the Son, Son gives to an angel, angel comes to John, John writes and gives to the churches. And then fourthly is the promise of Revelation. And I've never gotten to point four this fast before. Y'all should be encouraged today. How many points were there? Seven. We're about to bog down, okay? In a good way. Look at verse 3. It's amazing, these words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time. Same word again is near, same idea that's there. So this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing like this. Now it's good to read every book even Leviticus. 
Every one of them, there is a blessing to read God's word, to know what it said, to see God's heart, and to see the unveiling and the glory and the, even the preparation that the Old Testament writers write about who Jesus was, the Messiah, would be when he would come. But Revelation is unique in this blessing. So again, look, blessed is the one who out loud reads this prophecy. Blessed are those not only who read it and hear it, but also who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Go to the very end, chapter 22, and then we'll come back to chapter 1. The same idea is at the very end of the book and at the very beginning of it. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. So again, let me read verse 3, and as you're turning to 22, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then 22, 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So as John is writing these statements... John is stressing to us that the contents of this book are, just have this unique blessing that is connected with them. And so before we begin to see the seven churches, we need to see that there is going to be a blessing for them and there's going to be a blessing for us that we are reading these words out loud and considering them. The word blessed in the Greek means to be fortunate, to be privileged, to be the recipients of God's favor in getting this prophecy and this letter and this book to the church. And so the blessing comes to those who read it out loud, who hear it read out loud, and then make a decision that I'm going to live out the principles that I am told to do. Three actions we are to embrace. By the way, we are to do these things every time we come together In a small group, children's ministry, Sunday morning, we are to practice these three things primarily. We are to read aloud the scripture. We are to hear it and take it in. Not just words, just kind of going in there, but we are to give consideration to what's being read. And then we are to make a commitment to keep them. And again, John writes here, For the time is near. This nearness is just not a date and time kind of thing, but again, it's connected to prophetic revelation. Listen, there is nothing left that needs to come before God decides to fulfill the end of all things. And I've been coming more concerned and more concerned and more concerned about our Western culture's and the depravity that's there, that we no longer value children at all. We do not value children. Now, I know we do, but our cultures do not. I cannot fathom in my wildest, craziest, darkest regions of my mind why grown adults would want to dress in such a way that is opposite of their gender and dance sexually in front of children and people be okay with that. Our military has done this at some of their bases. This is happening everywhere. 
the slaughter of the unborn that has happened in this history of our country and in Europe and in many Western nations, we do not value children anymore. And it just causes me to say, Jesus, would you come back and write this and deal with this? Because we don't seem to be doing a very good job of valuing children. I believe this today with all of my heart, that if he was the creator in the beginning, then he is what today? The creator. And it is not our place to destroy and to kill what God has uniquely in his sovereign, infinite wisdom created. And so this idea of soonness and swiftness, I, I, there's no way to know when this is going to come. But we are to be ready and to know that His coming is going to come. And it is going to come and we need to be the kind of people who know this. The writers of the New Testament, four of them, really more than that, but, but the, you've got the Gospel writers, all four of them, who talk about the second coming of Jesus You have Paul talking about it. James talks about it. Peter writes about it. Jude, the Lord's half-brother, writes about that the time is near, that Christ is going to come. And so it just says there, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep the words that are in it, for the time is near. Would you go up just for a second again at the end of verse 1? And if you'll see the very last thing, it says there, his servant, John. And I want to talk about John just for a moment. Do you remember how it all began with John? John is with his brother. They're mending nets, taking care of nets on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes by and he says to them, I want you to follow me. He comes by, he's got two brothers that are already following him, Andrew and Peter. He encounters James and John. They're in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They're mending their nets and Jesus calls them to follow him. This is how it began for John. And I love what it says here. The text says they just immediately left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. How amazing is that? They had never met Jesus before. But when Jesus calls you, you can only do one thing. That's to leave everything and to follow the treasure of treasures, the Son of God. And so John begins this. As John is on the Isle of Patmos, we believe from what we understand that he was likely a younger teenager in the boat when he left his father and began following Jesus. John gets this revelation sometime in the mid-80s. So he is probably in his 80s. He's 80 years old and, and you've had 60 to 63 years after Jesus has died and ascended. He is an old man. He's on Patmos. And no, I want you to note this. God is not done using John though he is old. Do not think that you are too old to be used by God. That life has passed you by There's not something that God can do to use your life. John's life for me is so challenging. 
So here we're encountering a man who begins to follow Jesus as a teenager. Now he's in his 80s. And for 60 years, for six decades, he has been faithfully walking with God. And the text says there, his servant, John. He has been a servant of Jesus. For 60 years, a faithful witness of Jesus. What a challenge for everybody in the room this morning or listening online. Will that be true of our lives for however long we get to live? Will it be said of us, that person was faithful all their days to consider Jesus? So at the very end of his gospel, John writes these words in 21 24 and 25, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And then this is when he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then John writes this little letter to these believers, and he writes this in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then now John in his 80s, Writes Revelation 1.1, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Listen to this. At every stage of John's life, John never let go of his faith and trust in Jesus. He continued year after year, decade after decade, to find life in Jesus from the very first calling You see, John finishes well by spending his life by following Jesus and bearing witness about Jesus. And so John gets this revelation and he says, listen, here's the deal. This is the final thing. This is the unveiling. More of the glory of Jesus. Read this out loud. Listen to it. Keep it. Walk in these things because there's a blessing that is connected to this. And I don't have time today to do it, but one, two, three, four, five, six more times. Interesting. Seven times. Seven number representing completion, finishing now perfection. The book of Revelation says, read this, read this. And as you do it, know this, that there is a blessing that is connected to studying and knowing Revelation. Let me just share one of them. Revelation 19.9 said, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words. Last night... I took my wife out on a date. She thinks her husband is handsome and awesome sometimes. And I had the best pizza that I've ever had on this planet last night. I can tell you the restaurant another day, but it was amazing tasting and eating that. I can't wait for the marriage supper of the lamb. Can you? Can you imagine the food that God can make? if we can make the kind of foods that we can do here? 
So there's a blessing that is connected to this, and we must not miss that. Here's the fifth, fifth thing. There is a personal greeting that comes from John and the Trinity. So look with me in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before the throne. Let's stop there. Well, let's read the rest of five. Let's finish it up. And to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood. So I want to talk about this personal greeting just for a moment. There are 27 New Testament books. 19 of them, of the 27, begin with this initial heading, Grace and Peace to You. So this one does as well as most of Paul's letters did. Grace is the work of God. Him giving of Himself His unbelievable love, His majesty, His grace, His forgiveness and giving Jesus to undeserving sinners. That's why grace is amazing. Peace is what God brings into our lives when we come to know Him in salvation. And so John writes here, listen. He says, listen, churches, seven churches in Asia, I have a message from you, so grace to you. But this grace and peace that comes to you, it comes to you from the Father and from the Son and from the Spirit. So, so they are all three referenced here. From Him who is and who was and who is to come, this is a direct reference to Jesus. Though this, I mean, to, to the Father in this text, but it also has reference, we'll see, to Jesus as well. When it says, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 7 writes about seven, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. When we study the church of Sardis, we will get in deep detail about that. But the greeting here of grace and peace is from the Father who is and who was and who is to come, from the Holy Spirit and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And then verse 5 says, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this greeting comes from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So why should we read this? Here's another reason we should read this out loud. It is a love letter from God Himself. And that's there a while ago. It said that God loves. And this is a letter from Him to say this. Seven churches in Asia. I love you. I care about you. And I care about you to tell you the truth. That some of you have got some real issues. You're about to, you're about to lose your light. You're about, to, you're about to be extinguished. And so he's going to affirm them and he's going to confront them and call them to walk with him. So there's a personal greeting to this. Here's the sixth thing this morning. It's the perfections of Jesus. And we've got to talk about these for a minute. So the greeting comes... From Jesus Christ, verse 5 says, who is the faithful witness. Let's talk about Jesus being the faithful witness. Faithful means trustworthy. Hear this today. We can trust every word of Jesus, every word in the scripture, every action of Jesus. Jesus is himself the reliable word of God. 
He is the faithful witness, giving testimony of what is exactly true. We can depend upon Him in every kind of way. We can place full confidence in who He is. Jesus is the full reality of all of the counsels of God, all of the reason of God. He is the Word of God. Every aspect of His life is true and in line with everything that the Father had asked Him to do. He is the faithful witness. We can trust Him. He is also the firstborn among the dead. This word firstborn in the Greek is a word protokos. And it means this, not in time, but first in preeminence. He's the prototype. If you want to know what we are going to be like, we are going to be like Jesus. John writes in his, his, his uh, first, what we call First John. He writes there, you'll remember these words, and I hope they lift your heart this morning, that one day we will see Jesus as He is, and when we see Him as He is, John writes, we will be transformed in that very moment to be like Jesus. And so John, seeing and thinking about what, what's happening here, he is, Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn. He is, in other words, he is to be preeminent in every single thing of our life and in every way connected to the church. So he gets preeminence, first preeminence in death and life and eternity. Paul wrote the same thing in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he's the trustworthy word speaker of truth. He is preeminent in every way. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has total authority. Now listen, church, don't miss this. Because sometimes it looks like that evil's in charge of things. And if our God is sovereign, then he will even use the wicked things of the world to accomplish his purposes. He will use his word. He will use literally anything as he moves things along to accomplish things. There is nobody in charge of any place who is over King Jesus. He is the sovereign ruler. So as John begins to see these things, he's going to say an amen in a moment, and you can kind of get the idea. He's in his 80s now. He's been persecuted. He's on an island, wondering how much longer until I get to go See Jesus. And we'll see next week. He's worshiping one day. And Jesus shows up. And he sees this wonderful image of the glory of Jesus. So he's the trustworthy word speaker of truth. He's preeminent. He's the king in total charge of everything. Total authority. And look what it says in 5. Who loves us and freed us. From our sins. Love here is in the present tense, meaning now in this moment. We are loved right now in this moment if we are God's people. The evidence of this is that He freed us from our sins by His blood. He gave His blood, He gave His life, 
and he washed away our sins and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Is that not amazing today? I can't do it. A government can't do it. COVID can't do it. This, this war, this thing, this nation, this sickness, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because there's something that has us and has done a work in those that are saved and belong to God to where we cannot be stolen away. We have been freed. And where you see the blood of Jesus being referenced to, it can only speak of the atonement and the substitutionary death of Jesus who has done the greatest work. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. Let me remind you what Paul said about this, Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Poured out His glory. Poured out on undeserving people. He's the trustworthy speaker of truth. He is preeminent. He is the king in total charge. He freed us from sin by His righteous blood. And he made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God. We are chosen and given access. What did priests in the Old Testament have the ability to do? One priest every year could go into the Holy of Holies. Other priests were able to to go further into the temple and to do ministry and to do things. Priests minister to God and, yes, minister to others but they have access to God that the others didn't in regard to the Old Testament. We have this. This belongs to us. Let me remind us of this New Testament perspective. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing things that happened just moments ago and is happening in the room right now is we have this opportunity because we have been covered by the blood of Jesus... We have been made to be a kingdom of priests to minister to God. In our singing a while ago, when we lifted our hands or we just paused and we thought about His glory with the words, He was exalted. We had access and we could exalt Him in that moment. And we get to do that. What a privilege to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is the preeminent one, the one who has total authority, the one who has chosen us and given us access to worship Him and to experience Him. And a few verses later, Peter just shared a few more things. He says, but you are are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous, marvelous light. We are released from our shackles to now become citizens of the kingdom of heaven to minister to the eternal, holy, righteous God. What what amazing thing that is. And again, John has served him for six decades Can you imagine what John is experiencing now? Just living in persecution. We don't know for sure whether it's true or not. There's church tradition that tells us that. But 
One of the things church tradition tells us that they tried to kill John before he got to Patmos by burning him in oil in a big barrel. So if that's true, then John's got scarred skin, exiled, persecuted, and still can say amen. Because I have something that the world can't take. And that's the glory of my king. And then John says, he's got to get an amen in at some point. And he has dominion forever. And if forever is not enough, you have to add a what? And ever. He has dominion. Dominion means force, strength, might, manifested power. This is why John wasn't afraid on Patmos. This is why Peter, when he was crucified upside down, wasn't afraid. Why? When you know God has dominion, manifested power, forever and ever and ever, amen, you're not afraid and you're not fearful because you know somebody has greater power and greater authority. And church, I don't know what the future has for America and all this stuff. And I can only control what I can control, and I can't really control much, but I can kind of control what we do as a body of believers. If some sickness breaks out again, we're gathering together as God's people. We're not letting anybody tell us we can't meet. We are God's people. God's people meet because our God has manifested power, and we are not to be afraid. Then he says, he's the coming Lord. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. And yet even so, because of that, John says, amen. As if all of this is not enough, John has this one more perspective that has guided him all of these six decades of walking with Jesus. He believes without a shadow of a doubt Jesus is coming back. He knows it to be true and he writes of the absolute certainty of this event. And he says, and when he comes back this time, it's not going to be like the house of bread city, Bethlehem, where nobody knew but some shepherds. When he comes back this next time, Everybody is going to know those who pierced him, the Jewish people. And then the nations of the earth, the Gentile people, when he comes back, the Jews will go, oh no, we pierced our Messiah and rejected him. The Gentiles will go, we heard the message. People brought the gospel to us and we wanted our false gods to continue to worship them and those trinkets and everybody on that day when he comes back the Jews will who pierced him they will well and the Gentile nations will well because they will see him and they will know in that moment that every single bit of all of this is absolutely true and I want you to hear this today hear this when he comes back it is going to be clear who's in charge 
He's got a sword in his mouth. Read Revelation 19. He's in charge. Not just then. He is in charge today. Now I'm probably going to step on some toes in the room today. And I hope you don't misunderstand me. It's only a small section probably of the church. But I want to use this as an illustration. If you're a Swifty in the room this morning. Some of you are like, what's a Swifty? That's somebody who's into Taylor Swift, okay? Just kind of bring all you old people up to date, okay? I want to I show you an example of something that happens in our culture. And I want to remind you why King Jesus needs all of our attention. So on May 5th, 6th, and 7th, She held three shows in the city of Nashville where the Tennessee Titans play. On the 5th, there were 70,474 people. On the 6th, there were 70,698. On the 7th, there were 70,752. And on one of those, it poured, and the concert, I don't think, didn't start till like 10 or 11 that night, and people stayed in the rain. 70-something thousand people um, did that. So over a period of three days, 211,000 924 people gathered and not one eternal word was spoken, only the word karma. This is what the words say. Because karma is my boyfriend. Karma is a God. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma is a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Sweet like honey, karma is a cat purring in my lap because it loves me, flexing like I, and she uses the word God's name in vain, acrobat, me and karma vibe like that. And I say that this morning not to be critical of her, and I hope that you, that's not where your mind has gone. It's just to say this, that 211,000 people can gather in a stadium over three nights And nothing eternal is said. And I want to remind you that when the king comes back and every eye is on him, it will not be like that. He is the king. And his people must live as his priests to proclaim the glory of who he is. For when he comes, all will see him and see the one who was pierced and they will well at what is true. Lastly, is the proclamation from Jesus. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is who was and who is and who is to come. And He will see to it that everything is going to go as planned and that everything said in the Scriptures is going to come true because He is the Almighty who has absolute sovereign dominion, absolute authority, and absolute power. This word almighty here means the one who holds sway over all things. And this is what is true. But the question is, does he hold sway over us? 
does Jesus hold sway over us? I listened to a podcast this week of um, somebody who is uh, deconstructing their faith and walking away from their faith, had been in the church and had been a minister at a, at a fairly large church, and they're deconstructing. And for 60 minutes, the podcast was about that Jesus really isn't omnipotent. He really doesn't have almighty power. And he does. One of the most stirring parts of England, England's history is the one of Richard I. While he was away fighting Saladin, his kingdom back in England began to fall apart and entered into some pretty bad times. He had a brother named John. He was not a good man, not a man of integrity. Um, he usurped all of the authority that his brother had and began to run things, and he misruled the realm. And people did not like it, and so the people of England suffered And they longed for the return of the king to come back and praying that he would come back. One day, King Richard did return. And when he landed in England, he began to march straight for his rightful throne that belonged to him. And around his glittering coming, people began to celebrate. And there are many stories that are told during that time. Robin Hood and many other things that were happening and taking place. Um, But John just began to recapture the castles that were his, or Richard did, that John had begun to misuse and, and done some of the things that he had done there. And he laid claim to his throne, and nobody really dared to stand in his path as he came. The people would gather when he'd come into a place, and he would free it, and they would shout their delight, and they would go up to the top, and they would ring the bell in the church there, and they would celebrate And they would say these words, the lion is back. He's back. Long live the king. And I tell you today that one day a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a greater realm than England. And those who have abused the earth and mocked his name hated his glory and as he was gone and they seized his domains and they abused things and mismanaged his world, he will be dealt with and his people on that day when he returns will glory in his name. We will worship him. But the more relevant question though is this. Are we going to be worshipers now? Not just then, but are we going to be worshipers now. So what's it going to be? John had made his decision. What an example for us. 60 years of being a faithful witness. He is the Alpha and Omega who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.